Again, Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the word of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. I grew up in an area of the United States where it was common to uh, reenact specific battles of war, uh, especially the United States Civil War. Uh, people would rent a field, they, they dress up, they purchase all relevant uh, sort of accessories, and they pretend to shoot each other. Uh, I, had a, I had a roommate, I had a roommate in uni, whose friend encouraged him to come along to one of these uh, one of these reenactments in Maryland. His name was also Ryan. It was called the Battle of Antietam. It was the specific battle of the Civil War. And, and so he's going to go up and react it. And he had the honor, along with his friend, of finding the battle plans of the enemy. So he literally just sat against the fence, ate all day, and when he was called upon, he found the battle plans, which, by the way, had a little sticky note on them that said, take me. So that's how realistic this this reenactment was. So in the real battle, the one back in the 1800s, the Confederate Army coming into the Battle of Antietam, the Confederate Army was the side that was all about keeping slavery legal. They were kicking butt and taking territory at this point in the Civil War, U.S. Civil War, until the Union soldiers, two Union soldiers found the copy of a Confederate general, Robert E. Lee's, battle plans for that battle. They found a copy sitting, rolled up with two cigars. They just found it. And because they had those, that copy of battle plans, they were able to, to thwart, to slow and ultimately thwart the enemy's advance at the Battle of Antietam. And that's basically what's going on here in our passage this morning. We, we get the enemy's battle plans. Humanity has an enemy has an enemy, and it's not the person sitting next to you. It's not who you might think it is at work. It's, it's ultimately the devil. And, and the devil's ultimate aim is to separate us from our creator and watch us just wither until we die. And we're told in this passage that he has a battle plan to accomplish this aim. Verse 11, as you saw here, says that he has schemes He has strategies, but thankfully we're told his battle plan, and we can thwart his advance in our lives. So that's what we're going to learn about this morning, strategies of spiritual 
war. Spiritual warfare. First, we'll learn about the devil's strategies, and then God's strategies. And I think we see in this passage three of each. Three of each. So let's talk first about the devil's strategies. What are they? He, he causes us to underestimate him. He causes most to underestimate him. He causes some to overestimate him. And for all others, he just lies. He just lies. So let's talk about these things. The first strategy, he will try to cause us to underestimate him. You've probably heard the, the famous quote made popular by the brilliant film, The Usual Suspects. I don't know if you've ever seen it. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. Paul is keenly aware of this very real possibility, if not probability. In fact, he elsewhere says in one of his letters that the devil disguises himself as an angel of light. In other words, he doesn't necessarily want to be seen for who he really is. And so Paul goes to great lengths to explain how the devil works behind the scenes. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, verse 12. Paul's point is not that crime, racism, injustice, and such wicked acts don't have a human face. They certainly do, and Paul experienced them himself. But behind, above, beyond that flesh and blood veneer, is a far darker and more sinister evil going on. Some say the devil's a silly myth, right? Pitchfork, red suit, tail. But actually, when we acknowledge that, that hidden layer, that hidden layer of darkness, we can actually finally address all of the evil in this world. The, the fullness of evil in this world. If we just see evil as, as sort of just conflict, just a person, just a thing, just, just a certain set of circumstances coming together, then we can never address the fullness of evil in this world. But when we acknowledge there's a, there's a hidden layer, there's a hidden darkness behind what we see, then we can start to really address things like racism, injustice, and cruelty. Because we know there's evil in the schoolyards, boardrooms, and bedrooms, that leave us asking, why? That's just so senseless, right? There, there's some evil that we get. It's, it, it's motivated by selfishness. It's motivated by power. It's motivated by lust. And then there's some evil that we're like, that's just so senseless. It doesn't even make sense. I can't even comprehend it. And yet for those who acknowledge that there's something behind that flesh and blood, it starts to make some sense. Behind every deplorable act of bullying, and shaming, every attempt to manipulate and control another person, every time people choose corruption over honesty, they choose infidelity over faithfulness, they choose to take life rather than preserve it, there is a darker face of evil behind what you and I can just see. This past week, a 22-year-old named Salman Abedi set off an improvised explosive device outside a concert in Manchester, England, killed 22 persons, many of them young people. And as we begin to process through a tragedy like this, and my heart goes out to you, especially if you're, you're from there, maybe you even knew people or know people who knew, who knew victims, as we process through such a tragedy, 
we tend to see the flesh and blood problems. We see, we still, we see Salmon Abadi. And we ask the questions about, we ask flesh and blood questions like, what did he believe? Who influenced him? Right? What was he thinking? And so the first problem is theological, right? Abadi was indoctrinated into a belief structure that promised eternity and honor and pleasure for waging war against so-called infidels. The second problem is sociological. And there's the kind of questions experts ask. Who influenced this guy? Possibly ISIS. Certainly his family, as every family influences us. So we ask, you know, questions like, was he neglected by parents, even worse, abused? We ask these questions when we see these tragedies happen. The third question is psychological. The third problem is psychological. We want to get into his mind. What was he thinking? Was there brainwashing that took place? Such a person is often schizophrenic. Or, or in multiple personalities, PTSD, some type of psychosis. That's what's going on in the novel Silence of the Lambs, which was later made into a movie, very famous movie, you may have seen it. Uh, the FBI agent, Agent Starling, she's interviewing a serial killer who's in prison by the name of uh, Hannibal Lecter. And she wonders, she kind of wonders out loud, but just with a whisper, she wonders, what happened to him? What, what happened to you? Big mistake. Big mistake for the Hannibal Lecter who could like see a Band-Aid beneath her clothing when she got cut. He, what happened to you? And Hannibal kind of catches her and hears and replies, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. I happened. You, you can't reduce me to a set of influences. You, you've given up good and evil for behaviorism. And we all want to reduce evil. We all want to sort of like break it apart, diagnose it. How did this happen? How could a human being do this? And yet, there's a pure evil that exists, a bone-chilling evil that we watch on screen, but we don't really think is real in the world. Paul is trying to emphasize that beyond flesh and blood cruelties, there is a very real and far more pernicious evil at work there. So he says in verse 12 that we wrestle. This is a term that's used for for the very basest form of warfare. All other weapons are stripped away. It's two people fighting flesh to flesh, right? Tooth and nail for survival. In other words, this is an evil that's very near to us, Paul's saying. And he goes on, and he could have easily said, we wrestle against the demonic, we wrestle against the devil, we wrestle against demons, but instead he says, we wrestle rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. Paul's intentionally heightening the danger to get our attention that this power is very real and potentially very dangerous. So, so unlike most people in places like Africa and Asia, so many of us in the West, we don't even think about the devil or the demonic. But Paul also knows that there's a set of people who will overestimate the devil, who will overestimate the demonic to make him out to be bigger than he really is. And that's the devil's second strategy, to cause us to overestimate him. So multiple times, Paul reminds us about the strength we can have against the devil. So he says in verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Verse 13, and having done all, stand firm. Four four times Paul tells us to stand 
not flee, stand in the face of spiritual evil. Friends, the, the devil is not the opposite of God. The devil is not the yin to God's yang in the universe. The opposite of the devil is Michael, the angel. The angel we, we, we read about to open our service this morning because that's who the devil is. He is a fallen angel. One of many angels, just one who decided to rebel against God, who wanted power and authority for himself. And yet some people, some Christians, treat the devil as if he is God-like. Right? Too much fear, too much awe, such that everything bad or evil has a demon or a devil behind it. Right? That's the devil to a kid sneaking out past his curfew. That's the devil right there. Or, you know, going over the speed limit. That's the devil. Right? And, you, and you get this sort of thing, right? And everyone, in, in, in Christian circles, you'll hear this sometimes if you haven't been around that before. Some Christians, every demon has a name, and we must learn that name if we're going to defeat the demon. I once returned from a missions trip to visit uh, friends stateside, summer camp. And one of my friends had been, had been busted for something and kicked out of camp. I think it was for marijuana. I don't remember. They were kicked out. And I wanted to go visit this friend, right? Like, they're hurting. They've been kicked out. Like, like I should go visit them. And yet an older woman, uh, definitely, who, who was more mature in the faith than me, all these things, but she warned me, that girl's got the spirit of Jezebel on her. And I, and I was like, she said, if you, if you visit her, Ryan, you might get that spirit also. It, it might come upon you, you know, so stay away, pray, for the, pray against the spirit of Jezebel, but don't visit. And I just wanted to show the love of Christ to my friend, but I started after hearing that, I was like, maybe Satan's hate is more powerful than Christ's love. But no, absolutely not. That, that is putting the devil and the demonic too high. That, that's overestimating him. There's nothing in the Bible that says you have to name demons and, and this sort of thing, and there's nothing like that. Now, when neither of these strategies work, the devil uses one more tactic. It's the one he uses the most often. He lies. He uses, and this is the third strategy, he uses deceit. When you hear someone say the devil, or diabolos in Greek, what do you hear when you hear diabolos? You hear diabolical, and that's right. But, but the, the verb form of diabolos means lie or deceive. It's who the devil is. Jesus says in, in John 8, 44, when he lies, when the devil lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It is who he is. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible says, it's true of the devil. It's what the devil speaks. Because it's his character, his nature, the when Paul speaks of the flaming darts of the evil one in verse 16, I believe he's talking primarily about lies. And I've got to tell you, I hate this about the devil. Because his lies come to all sorts of people from all different directions in every shape and size. And they hurt. They hurt many people. Paranoia, schizophrenia, the, the mania of bipolar 2 are all lies that are taken to the uttermost, right? When someone starts to believe things that aren't true and to, to the extreme, which is another reason why I don't separate science from spirituality, mental illness from the demonic, medicine from prayer. There doesn't have to be that separation, though the church and the scientific world have made them. The, the worst 
forms of mental illness are really just lies taken to the nth degree. I've been, I've been, guys, in, in, in cold, sterile mental wards looking dear friends in the eye. As I look them in the eye, there's something else behind that face. There's something else behind those eyes that, that mere science can explain nor, nor mere medicine can cure. Lies also come in small packages, smaller darts. They can be small. It starts with some self-talk. What we say in our minds that I'm not loved, I'm not valued, I'm not good, I'm alone. God's not with me anymore. Just little bits, little untruths. Murder begins with the lie, I have the right to take this life because they don't deserve it. Right? Stealing begins with the lie that I have the right to take what's not mine. Pornography begins with the lie that I have a right to look at this other person's body. Arguing just day to day. I mean, arguing, conflict, so often begins with lies, doesn't it? I deserve to be hurt. I deserve to be prioritized. So I will be hurt, and I will, I will make sure that I'm hurt. It's more important to be right than to make peace. That's a lie that goes through our heads sometimes when we're dealing with somebody else. So Satan uses these lies, big and small, to deceive us. Now, those are his strategies. Every person encounters hardship now and again, right? From time to time. For some, suffering seems more constant, more prevalent in our lives than others. And sometimes seasons of our lives we experience more suffering than others. And and when that happens, when the age-old questions that comes up is, is it me, God, or the devil? Is this suffering? Is this hardship? Who caused it? Is it me, God, or the devil? And this question is asked out of a very practical concern, which is how should I respond in the midst of this suffering? Right? Because should I respond with conviction, with contentment, or should I wage war? Because if it's me, if it's sin, that persistent know in my heart of just rebelling again and again against God, then I need the Holy Spirit's conviction. I need to come under the conviction of God to say, you know what, God, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I need to confess. I need to ask forgiveness. If it's God giving me, if it's God, God giving me the bread of adversity, I need to grow content with this plan to grow me through that adversity, right? There's a contentment that needs to happen. God, I know this is for you. I know you have a good plan. But if it's the devil, I've got to prepare myself for attack. I've got to wrestle to fight and fight hard. And what the Holy Spirit brought to my attention this week, in this passage, it's a passage I've read probably you know, hundreds of times, what he, brought to my, what, he, what he helped me see this week is that that in-the-moment reaction or response is not Paul's concern. Paul's concern for us is everyday preparation because an evil day will come. It's not the question. Paul's not answering the question, is, is this the devil or is it not? Because I need to know how to, what to do now. It's have you prepared because evil is coming your way. Look at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, in other words, having done all that preparation to take up that whole armor, Having done all that, to stand firm. When the actual day arrives, all I have to do, because I'm ready, is to stand firm. Verse 14, he says, Stand therefore, right? stand in the midst of that evil day, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of white. In other words, past this, I've already done that, 
So now I can stand, therefore. Verse 16, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith. Not just that moment of extremity. Now I'm going to do it. Now I'm going to get serious with God. No, it's an everyday taking up the full armor of God in our lives. That is Paul's concern. Now, in The Art of War, that ancient book of strategy that every man instinctively wishes he's read every time he hears it, The Art of War, yes, I need to read that. Chinese general Sun Tzu, he says this, every battle is won or lost before it is fought. Every battle is won or lost before it's fought. And it would seem here, from this, this largest treatise, about the largest section we have about spiritual warfare, that Paul would agree. It happens in the preparation. You've heard me tell the story about the Air Force pilot who's making a surprise return home from war. His family has no warning about it. So he comes home unannounced. And as he comes home, he walks in to see a welcome sign, a welcome banner raised. The kids have cards ready for him. And down the hallway walks his, his wife with her best crisp yellow dress on, her makeup all done up, lipstick affixed to her lips. And he asks the question, you know, how did, how did you know I was coming? How did you know? And she replies, we didn't. We prepared ourselves every morning. And that's what the Holy Spirit, I think, guys, is encouraging us to do. We're putting on the whole armor of God. We don't know when that evil day is going to come, so get ready every day. So how do we do that? How do we get ready every day? Let's look at God's strategies for spiritual warfare here. And as we look, we'll notice, we'll notice that each strategy is about the gospel. Each strategy is encouraging us to become gospel people, gospel saturated with the good news about Jesus. Here are the strategies to receive the gospel message, stand upon gospel truths, to pray for the gospel's advance. Let's talk about each one here. Strategy for number one, receive the gospel message. Paul, here in this letter, he's at the end of a long letter in which he's been speaking to a church, a group of assembled people who've all made the decision to receive the good news about Jesus, that Jesus alone is the God of the universe, and he alone can forever forgive the sin in our hearts. Earlier in this letter, he explained that they had been persistently rebelling against God. And in rebelling against God, they were unwittingly actually following the devil. No one knows it, kind of like Matrix style. Nobody knows. They are. But then this good news appears. And as they receive it, they're given new life. Paul tells them that their souls are already seated with Jesus in heaven. Nothing can truly touch a Christian, a child of God. If they die or they're killed, they get glorious new bodies. So the devil can do his worst, whether by torture or temptation, but it cannot take away eternity with God. That's the gift of receiving this good news about Jesus. And our passage here at the end of Paul's letter, it's peppered with different ways to understand this gospel message. I just want to point out a few You can understand the gospel message in terms of righteousness, verse 14, that the gospel is good news about righteousness. You and I try to live good lives, the best lives we can, but we cannot live perfect lives. And even as we compare ourselves to other people and secretly tell ourselves, nobody's perfect, nobody's perfect, there's a nagging sense that something isn't still right about that. That's because we all fall short of perfection, of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, of loving our neighbor as ourselves the way we should. But where we failed, one person did not, and that's Jesus Christ. 
Jesus lived the life we could not, the life we could never live, and died in our place, died in the death we deserve, so that any who would trust in him, they get his righteous record, his righteous scorecard before God. That's the good news about Jesus. Here's another way to understand. You can understand it in terms of peace. Look at verse 15, the gospel of peace. The gospel is good news about peace. It, we're born, all of us, with this inclination in our hearts to say no, to say no to authority, no to our mom and dad, and ultimately no to God. We're all born with that. That big no in our hearts, the Bible calls sin, and it separates us from God. Such that, that peace needs to be brokered, and Jesus is the one to broker it. Jesus, we're told, actually in Ephesians also, is our peace. He stood between us and the Father when he went to die on the cross. He stands between us now today in our prayers. He is our mediator between us and the Father. We were doing a, a beach day with a wonderful family on Wednesday. And, and, and while having this beach day, I was out in the open sea with three kids clinging to me. All right, just, just barely waiting, heads above water. It was really very dangerous, you can imagine. But, but that included this family's little girl. And she was proudly, as I was sniffing saline into my mouth, my, my nose, uh, salt water, she was proudly telling me about her uh, Bible verse that she memorized for her school. It was John fourteen twenty seven. So she shared, she said, and peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not give, Jesus said this, I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. I love that verse. So I, I said to her, you know, Jesus says peace is more and that feeling that everything's okay. It's knowing God's with you no matter how you feel. I don't know if she got that. All right. <laughs> She's a little girl. I don't know. But, uh, but you, you get that, right? We think of peace as just being that feeling like, oh, all the circumstances are great. Um, you know, meditation. Mm, I'm feeling that. No. Peace is knowing everything's okay because of God, because of Jesus, no matter how I feel. That's a way to understand the gospel. Another way is salvation. The gospel is good news about salvation. Jesus says in John 5, 24, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That person doesn't come into judgment. That person has crossed from death to life. Every person begins in sin, dead in their relationship with God, but by trusting what Jesus says is true, that the Father gives life forever through Jesus, you're forever on the other side of that chasm, on the other side of that bridge side of life. So the only reason you shouldn't fear, you shouldn't fear the, the power of the devil in your life is because you've decided to trust your life to a higher power. Right? So strategy number one, God's strategy is receive Jesus, receive the good news. And once you've received the gospel message, here's the second strategy, stand upon these gospel truths. So when Paul exhorts us to prepare ourselves daily with God's armor, he starts, rightly, with our undergarments. He starts with the underwear. Right? So, so first he says in verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth. And this refers not to the, a belt as we think about it, not this kind of belt around our, our, just our waist. It refers to a leather apron which hung under a Roman soldier's armor and it protected a soldier's thighs. It was the first thing they put on. It was literally the underwear of the armor. Fasten on the belt of truth. Truth is the first thing we put on for spiritual battle. Begin with what's true. 
The devil, friends, he's going to assault you with lies, either to puff you up or to bring you down. But gospel truths are the perfect weapon for that. You can say to and remind yourself, I am righteous in God's sight because of Jesus. The devil's going to want to pump you up about righteousness and say, look, you're right because of how good you are. You're right because of your performance. You're right because your argument's better. No, I'm, I'm right because of Jesus. Jesus alone, right? The devil will try to bring you down when you fail. I'm not right with God anymore. I failed him. I failed him too many times. No, I'm righteous in God's sight because of Jesus. You can, you can remind yourself, peace, here comes peace again. God and me are at peace because of Jesus. The devil's going to try to puff you up and say, look at all these peaceful blessings I've given in your life. And we'll think to ourselves, oh, that's because of my performance. That's because I'm a good person. That's because of look how much I've served the church. He'll try to puff you up, and you can remind yourself, no, I'm really at peace with God because of Jesus. And when he tries to bring you down, I'm feeling low, nothing's going well. Woe is me, I'm a Christian Eeyore. Want, want, right? No, I'm right with God because of Jesus. These are gospel truths that we can stand on. And Paul tells us we have this sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The sword he's referring to in verse 17 is Machaira. It's a, it's a specialized short sword that was used in battle to, to cut, to stab. There's a broad sword, and then there's a Roman. Roman soldiers have this, this short sword and use that in close battle, cutting and stabbing. It doesn't kill quickly. requires a little bit of persistence. When the evil day comes, the devil's lies are going to come swiftly, and they're not going to stop right away. But we have these gospel truths. God, who is God towards me in Christ? Who am I in Christ? And these truths cut and they stab the enemy. They cut and they stab until he gives up and goes away. There's a third strategy. Pray for the gospel's advance. There's a saying in both war and also in sports, be it, be it rugby or football or, or basketball, that the best defense is a good offense. That's right. The best defense is a good offense. And the best offense against the devil is prayer. And so Paul spends these last three verses of our section saying, pray, so do all this, get ready, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication or making prayer for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given me. Pray for me. Words may be given me to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Now, if we want to see the good news advance, we've been talking about defense so far. If we want to see the good news advance, we need to pray. If we want to see righteousness reign in the lives of more people, peace to rest upon our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our homes, right? salvation to come in the most unlikely places, there's no substitute, friends, for prayer. That's how we make our advance. Paul calls himself here, it's interesting, an ambassador in chains. What he means is, he's the king's messenger of good news. King's representative. And by the way, we're all called this elsewhere. But the only difference is that Paul does so while in chains. In other words, Paul is imprisoned. And I have to ask myself as I read this, what would be my prayer request if I was rotting in jail? When Paul says, pray also for me, what do you expect Paul would say? I would think, Pray also for me to deliver me from this place. Deliver me from this hole. Give me a fair trial. Give me justice. 
But Paul asked for the gospel to be boldly proclaimed and advanced in the jail, amongst the prisoners, amongst the guards. Why, when we go through stuff, why are we not praying for the gospel to advance through our hardship? Certainly our, our Sunday prayer gathering, coming up, or sorry, Saturday prayer gathering, this coming Saturday, is a great opportunity. Please sign up. It's a great opportunity to pray for one another, to be bold in sharing the best news ever, to pray for the gospel's advance among people who don't yet know Jesus, to pray that Christians would stand upon gospel truths when the enemy assaults them with lies. Prayer is the Christian offense. God uses prayer to take territory for the gospel. You know, the devil once took all this territory. God gave humans dominion over the earth, rule over the earth, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. But then our ancient ancestors rebelled, handed over their rule and their reign to that ancient serpent. When Jesus came to live the life we could not, die the death we deserve, and he was raised to conquer the devil once and for all, it was our D-Day, the decisive day of victory, even though the devil fights back. A decisive day of victory. In fact, that's a helpful way to think about the battle we wage today is to distinguish between D-Day and and V-Day. The Normandy invasion in the summer of 1944, World War II, achieved D-Day for the Allies. The decisive day of victory. Victory was declared. It was assured against the forces for evil. But the Axis powers, man, they did not stop fighting. Whilst the Allies took more and more territory back until the summer of 1945, one year later, when V-Day was declared in Europe. And such, friends, is the era of history we live in now. Any of us who've received the gospel message need not fear when the devil fights back. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus already achieved for us our D-Day. And now is the time to take back territory from our enemy and for the gospel Until that day, our V-Day comes. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would open our eyes, you maybe even have opened our eyes, to the reality that the devil is real. But even more importantly, as the lies come in and the deceit, that there is a higher power that is even more real in Jesus Christ. He has come for us. He has... He wants to save us. He wants to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and bring him into the kingdom of glorious light if we would just but trust him. That as Christians, we can stand upon these gospel truths and remind ourselves about them every day. That I'm right because of Jesus, not because of things I've done or things I've done wrong. That I have peace with Jesus, not because of how I feel either way, because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. We have all these truths that we're called to prepare ourselves, to to put on every day. God, help us prepare, because the evil days are coming. If they haven't come already, they aren't yet here. Make us also, God, people of prayer who want to take back territory for the gospel, who, who appeal to you constantly. God, help us. Help us share the good news boldly. Help others share the good news, boy. Please take back territory for the gospel and for Jesus Christ. May we be such people who spend our days praying and taking back territory from the enemy and for Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.